Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai John at our website, JohnStation.com. I'm Bryce Whitwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And Ali, we are deep in the heart of season three. How does it feel? Feels like season two a little bit. <laughs> How does season three feel so far? You mentioned this to me the other day. I'm I'm super surprised. I, I can't believe we've done three years of. Maybe we're repeating ourselves. Maybe if we could just keep rerunning their old shows, and no one would notice. Who knows? But anyway, we'd like to thank all of you for your continued support. And as always, if you like the show, share us with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Ali, we are talking media again today, and we are happy to have one of the leaders of media in China. Ben Condit is here with us today. He is the CEO of Mindshare in China. Ben's career has spanned over two decades in digital marketing and the media industry, and under his leadership, Mindshare China has grown to become the largest and most awarded agency in the market. Ben is also responsible for overseeing the development of the agency's products, its people, its profile. He does literally everything at Mindshare. So we're so lucky to have him.、Uh, and by the way. Uh, if you didn't know, Ali, Mindshare was awarded two golds at Campaign Asia's Greater China Agency of the Year, Media Agency of the Year, and Digital Agency of the Year, as well as their work rankings, number one agency network for the third consecutive year. Mindshare was responsible for 19 of the 90 campaigns, 20% awarded by Work, the World Advertising Research Council in the Media 100, and seven agency offices in the top 35. Ben's journey with Mindshare began in 2012、uh, when he took charge as the agency digital lead for Team L'Oreal. I remember that,、uh, which was a, obviously a pivotal global account for the agency. Today, he helps growth for some of China's most loved brands, including KFC, Ely, Nike, Unilever. The list goes on and on. Ben has ascended to the role of CEO at 2021. He describes his role as akin to having a box of chocolates. Every day, that's why he weighs over 300 pounds. Ben, welcome to Shanghai Zan. You know, it's not it's not as bad the weight these days. You know, you just got intermittent fast. That's the key, <laughs> right? Just skip breakfast and everything's better now, right? Then you can have all the chocolate you want. Just out of curiosity, I mean, to get us started, Ben. And Ben, you're American, right?、Uh, yeah, a long time ago. And, and where are you from originally?、Uh, no, yeah, nowhere.、Uh, take your pick of 14 cities and. Seven states. Then I moved to Hong Kong, and then when your dad's thirty-eight years old and he decides to be a doctor instead of selling life insurance and、uh, an Air Force scholarship with two kids, one ten, one seven, is the easy way. <laughs> That's outrageous.、Uh, start us off. Tell us about this daily chocolate、uh, injection that you have. About the variety of challenges and rewards、uh, that are presented to you on a daily basis. Is it a box of chocolates or is it more like a roller coaster? Well, I think the box of chocolates is the roller coaster, right? I mean, you never know what you're going to get. It's、uh, to quote the good old Forrest Gump.、Um, genuinely, you can have a really lovely piece of chocolate. You can have very much the absolute piece of poo chocolate. You can have the chocolate you're really not sure. Do I like that? Should I like that? Is that something I should be enjoying? The one benefit is it's always different. 
you know, this morning I woke up to emails that came in overnight from my, my global overlords, which necessitated 6.15 in the morning replies to alleviate situations. Uh, if you look at what happened at noon today, it was calling people to say, hey, here's your raise. So it can be very good. It can be awkward, <laughs> but it's different every damn day. Uh, that's the amazing part of China, isn't it? That uh, it's just so highly unpredictable. You've been in China for over 10 years. How would you characterize the evolution of Mindshare? And if you could divide that growth into maybe, I don't know, three distinct phases, what key transformations stand out as a pivotal to the agency's success? I mean, I think you go back to 2012 and that kind of first phase when I joined. I mean, in fairness, Mindshare was just a J-O-B. I mean, I had seven cups of coffee in one day, uh, meeting seven different agencies and Mindshare was one of two places that gave me an offer. It, it really, there was no thinking beyond that. And what was funny is like when I joined, people were like, oh, Mindshare, they're really hurting. You know, I mean, they lost Unilever. They lost this. They lost that. They're looking for any help they can get. I didn't think anything of it at the time. But when I joined, two weeks after I joined, the CEO quit. So I met the CEO of Mindshare at the time in 2012. One time he wandered off after saying hi in a hurry. And then he was gone. So that 2012 to, to early 2013 was like that first chapter of Mindshare where I wasn't quite sure what I had joined. I was like, it's a job. I moved up here to be with my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time. And then in 2013, Amrita joined as the new CEO of China. She kind of was the Kindle for or the fuel for basically the next kind of eight years of madness. So from 2013 to 2020, uh, to the beginning of 2021, where we just kind of went on a mission and just crazy new business spree, like just winning clients. Like we just were relentless, pitching, 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 pitching. When Amrita was going to kind of move on, there was a question about who would be the CEO. And then I somewhat stupidly or foolishly said, why not have a challenge? <laughs> and do something other than strategy and just writing the, the, the strat deck. And then I'm the CEO. Um, so it's been quite the evolution of the agency within that. So you have the doldrums, you have the crazy, crazy growth period. And then you have us now at this stage where our scale means we're almost conflicted out of 80% of the pitches that happened in China now. You know, we have LVMH. I can't go for Richmond. Um, we have Nike. I'm never going to go for Adidas. We have Unilever. We're never going to go for P&G. So it means now we're in a very different stage. It's not acquiring new clients so much. It's more around expanding the scope of the partnership that we have with our clients now. So that's really the stage we're in these days. Are you still pitching a lot recently? Uh, I mean, you mentioned in the early during the middle stages, you pitched all the time. Oh, yeah. No, we still pitch all the time. It's just usually defense pitches, unfortunately. <laughs> Somewhat annoying. <laughs> I think in 2012, we had six of our six of our top 10 in 2012 were up for pitch. That was annoying <laughs> to go through that. But that's just the nature of the business at this point, right? I mean, we're, we're in the Nestle pitch right now. We're round two, but I think everybody's in round two. We'll see how it goes. Um, it'd be nice to get Nestle back. They were a client we had, and then they departed in 2020. So it'd be nice to bring them back into the fold. But, you know, these pitches, 
they're pretty much nonstop. But probably the best thing that we have now is we start to get some clients that come in without pitch, which is a bizarrely nice thing to have in today's kind of Chinese economy. But, you know, the competition for the clients we have and the defense that we have to go on all the time, it's a hell of a lot to defend, but it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> a lot of the pitching that you're doing right now is, is defense or it's, it's recovery or uh, clients that have worked with you in the past. I was, I was curious to kind of understand why is it that clients leave, you know, a, a company, a media partner as establishes Mindshare um, and look for options. Um, and there's probably a number of factors, but from your, you know, from the, over the last 10, 15 years, what are kind of the three big reasons why companies or clients look, look outside? The first is usually going to be some sort of economical or business reason, right? So if their business isn't good or they're looking at some sort of – the easy scapegoat is always going to be the agency. So that's number one. And it's not to say that it's always because the business is bad. It's just that the agency is a scapegoat. There could be a lot of reasons there. They're under business pressure. The second could be you've been with them for a very long time, right? It could be 10 years of a relationship and somebody new comes in is wants to have a fresh start. Those are going to be the two biggest reasons. The third is really around, you know, in very specific situations, you have a client leader who on the agency side departs, you lose that relationship combines with some churn on the client side. And, you know, it's just time for a new chapter, right? There's always going to be reasons there. Those are going to be the three that really drive churn or change with a long-term relationship. How important is cost on these pitches? I mean, that's the one thing that I always heard was that clients are just looking for inexpensive media and they'll just choose the agency that can give the lowest cost. I know some of your competitors, they'll lose money to win business. So just to be able to bring clients in, how important is cost in a, in a media pitch? You're never going to say that cost isn't important, but in the best relationships we've had over the years, what I can say from firsthand experience is cost was not the deciding factor. The expectation is as Group M and being the largest media group in China, you're going to deliver the best price and you should in theory, right? But when price is the only deciding factor, you're usually dealing with a short-term view or a, a client with a short-term view, that's probably not going to be viable in the medium and long-term and probably not even viable in the near-term at the same time. The best client partnerships we have, and if I just think of sort of our, our top 10 clients, none of them are price-driven from that perspective. It's not like we don't have to deliver the best pricing. We do. We have to deliver extremely competitive pricing. I mean, we deal with Unilever, LVMH, and so on, Right. But these are clients that Unilever wasn't an open pitch. Unilever came to us and said, privately, we're going to have a closed review. We'd like you to tell us what the agency model of the future should be. And so we sat down and did stakeholder interviews for three months at Unilever, understanding what the challenges were, what they wanted to resolve, and built that agency model for them. And I mean, we were doing this in the middle of COVID kicking off in 2020. LVMH is, yes, a cost-conscious client because of the scale that they have, and you have to deliver value for them. 
But more than anything, they value the quality of their agency partner. And that is fairly quintessential for our best client relationships. Yes, the pricing of the media will be critical. Any of the times that we've been in a pitch process where they come and tell you that the buy-in is going to be 60% of the decision, okay, you know where you stand on that. And you manage your expectations going into that process. I also, I mentioned in the introduction that Mindshare was, you awarded, and uh, it's clearly that you've been awarded Media Agency of the Year many times, uh, but you also awarded the Digital Agency of the Year, which normally is a spot, I guess I came from a digital agency, so that was something that we would consider that that was kind of our turf, being a digital creative agency. I guess my question is, are digital agencies becoming media agencies and vice versa? Where do you see the lines drawn anymore? Is it something that, you know, it's becoming less clear where a media agency does versus a creative to digital agency? Um, and do you think that creative agencies are still relevant in China? China's a 90% digital share of investment media industry or media market, right? So at the end of the day, for every $10 that goes in, $9 are going into digital media. So I don't think any media agency can not be digital at its core at this stage. And surely we cannot be as mindshare. I guess where the lines have really blurred over the last three to four years in particular has been you know, the advent of live streaming, the advent of digital commerce, the reality that Everyone is looking at top and bottom funnel and trying to find the balance and how do you invest and what do you do? You can't have a great campaign or a great consumer activation that doesn't cover not just traditional and digital media, but that actually goes across all the different silos of a client organization at the same time. So I'd almost say if you're not a fully integrated agency, you cannot be successful. And that's not just across traditional and digital media for whatever that's worth at this point. You need to be interfacing with the sales teams, the trade team, the PR team. You need the sale, the EC team if they're not under the sales team working with you. You need all of that coming together. Otherwise, you're not going to build a compelling consumer experience. That's just China now and today. So you, know, you could argue, should there be a media agency versus a digital agency versus an integrated agency? I mean... You know, at the end of the day, it's an award show and we need to have categories for agencies to win, right? But, <laughs> I mean, it's nice to win media and digital. It's just the nature of the business at this point. I don't think you can really be successful and not cover all aspects. I don't think you can be an agency at scale that has impact on the bottom line without crossing all of those lines anymore. When, when I'll, like I'll talk to the, the client teams, our client leaders, it's very, the North Star for any client leader at Mindshare is very simple. I tell them, I don't give a shit really what the media director thinks. I don't really care all that much what a CMO thinks. I care whether the CEO can see tangible business impact from the investments we make on that client's behalf. Because if they cannot see it and we cannot demonstrate it to the CEO, you're a vendor. Vendors are commodities. It's a race to the bottom. We're not a strategic partner of that client organization. 
I'm not saying we have that relationship with all of our clients, but I really try to counsel my client leads to say, stop worrying about what the head of media thinks because they only care about a CTR or a CPC, which is a pointless metric. It's absolutely, utterly meaningless as a metric, right? What matters is, did we drive a business result? Did we build the brand? And brand is a business result as well. So if you're not building those and you're not able to tangibly demonstrate that to the CEO of your client, you're going to eventually lose favor. And that just, that's not a sustainable business model. No, I, I completely agree with what you just said. I think it's exceedingly difficult to, to work at a digital agency that's not overseeing all the different parts. And if they're not, then they're just not sustainable uh, to your point. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember when I was to that point, I, mean, I remember was at Isobar. I used to get, I mean, this is a long time ago, right? When I was at Isobar in 2007, 2008, 2009, you're getting 5% of the budget at best and you're getting the brief after everyone's already decided everything. Those were the days where I used to get incredibly frustrated. So I I get it. And now the benefit now is you get more of a remit, but it has to be more than just digital media or a digital activation. It needs to be, let's think holistically about what does the business need? How are we going to drive a business growth proposition, execute it and be able to prove that we executed it effectively to the lab. And if you can't prove that, what are we doing? But it's always been a challenge for client leaders to uh, navigate uh, a client organization. So on the one hand, you have a company the size of WPP, an agency the size of Mindshare, and the clients that you work with or partner with are obviously not very small. And gaining, um, you know, being able to pivot CEOs to your favor or to also kind of see the value that, the recommendations that Mindshare is making is helping them on top line, bottom line. How do you rally an organization the size of Mindshare to influence an organization the size of, let's say, a Unilever? Like we only have two numbers that matter for us, full stop. And that is operating profit, because thank you, WPP. And the second is the Vantage score. Does the client love us or not? But within the Vantage score, so on a scale of 0 to 10, how likely is a client to recommend you and what do they rate your performance? It's not about just getting the media director. You have to run it all the way up to the C-suite. And that's part of what we enforce as a KPI in our organization. Now, within that, and you take Unilever, we have the benefit that it's a significant media investment. For Unilever, it's not small money that they're investing, and it's a huge number on their PL. So, simply because of that, you will get the highest level of attention within the organization. Then it's a point of when you have what we call the CLT meetings, China Leadership Team meetings for Unilever, it's making sure that we're clearly demonstrating what we're doing, the scale of what we're doing, the scale of that potential impact of what we're doing. And any new developments or innovations have to be quantified within the scale of Unilever's overall investment and what the likely business impact will be. It's easy to say. It's very difficult to do consistently over time. But that's a bit our job. 
We just have to keep doing it. Obviously, every client is important, but then there are five or six clients that kind of define the profile of Mindshare. And and you kind of organize your day around those. And you've got a couple of key projects that are really important that you're pursuing as well, that you're kind of hands-on involved. And those are the ones that kind of, you know, are going to ding that Vantage score that, you know, that, that are important to the CEO. Is that what kind of then drives the perception that clients have towards Mindshare, would you say? or Number one, I'm one guy out of a thousand people at Mindshare. I'm not going to be in every client meeting. I'm not going to be able to be there for everything that ever happens. And while I like to think I'm somewhat good at my job, me showing up to a meeting or being involved in a project isn't going to materially move the needle all that often. So it's down to having the people within the organization and the broader team, you know, 200 plus people that work on Unilever that get the job done, right? And so I can set the KPI, I can set the direction, and I will have the check-in meetings, and we will, on critical meetings, yes, I'm involved. But you have to believe in the people within the organization to follow through. So, you know, us being able to shift Unilever is not me on my own. That's like insane. It's the work of actually probably 250, 270 some odd people at any given time. The the art is making sure that they actually are all marching in the vaguely similar direction. I'm not going to say in lockstep because that's kind of a ludicrously high hope to have, but to have them all moving in the same 45 degree arc, we're doing a pretty good job. What do you think are the factors that are going to drive growth for Mindshare in China in the next, you know, next few years? I mean, we read a lot of reports about there's going to be a dip in overall economic growth in China. Some said about maybe up around 4% uh, over the next few years. Uh, This will obviously impact the, uh, clients spending money on media. I know we've seen even recently. So given that, how do you, where do you see the growth opportunities and how do you anticipate this will shape the challenges and strategies for the company and the leadership? We have, you know, we work with 200 plus brands in the market. And so we work across practically every category that exists from FMCG to luxury and everything else in between. That means where the economy goes, our clients go and Thus, doth mindshare, right? Um, for better or for worse these days. Our key opportunity for growth goes back to what I was talking about before, which is scope expansion. We need to expand our the depth and the breadth of our relationships with each individual client as much as we possibly can. And that goes back to you're not just the media agency. You want to do content. You want to do commerce. You want to be experiences. You want to get involved as much as you possibly can across the scope of the client's budgets and where they're investing. But at the same time, you have to take into account the fact that media planning and buying in the last three years is 10x the complexity and labor cost that it was before. It's probably 100x from what it was 10 years ago. Actually, easily 100x at this point. Douyin has updated their framework and their back-end system 52 times in six months this year. 
<laughs> so it's a bit of a bit of a laugh in terms of how much it's evolving and how quickly it's evolving. And if you look at the number of steps it takes to do a single digital booking, I think it's like 13 or 14 steps to do a single format on a single platform at this point. So what we're asking, it's, 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 it's pretty, pretty ridiculous at this point. And our biggest challenge as an agency is how do we optimize the ways of working? How do we centralize? And to use the catch-all phrase of automation, how do you make it easier for people to survive in this environment? Um, the benefit in the China landscape versus outside China is that it's not a black box as much as you might think. You can get access to the data. We can go into Yuntu and Douyin and we can interrogate audiences all day long. However, to do that, the Yuntu dashboard is the most Byzantine insanely horrible user interface known to mankind. So it's a horrible experience for anyone to go in and do that. So if you really want to make the best value out of it, you know, on something like that, you're using RPA. So we'll leverage RPA to throw a Band-Aid on a terrible process. At the same time, we're looking at how do we fix our own internal ways of working? So is it centralization? Is it finding different teams and revisiting roles and responsibilities, find a better way to do it? Is it thinking about how we leverage Power Automate to help our people think better about the processes and revisit the process itself to not just automate it, but find the most efficient way to run that process. All of these things have to happen um, concurrently or we're not going to survive. People talk about like AI coming. I mean, I'm worried about taking everyone's jobs. Jesus, man, like we need AI. Like the only way I'm going to make it sustainable for my people to survive is leveraging the hell out of every possible machine learning, artificial intelligence, AIGC capability that exists in the market because it's really becoming truly truly unsustainable at this point. That's a mind-blowing thing that you just mentioned because I would think that the platforms are becoming, they're simplifying them because if they make them simpler to use, then it, it enables more media to, to be spent. I mean, if you think about Meta's media platform, it's crazy easy. Like anybody can jump on Meta at any time and, and buy media. Why, why do you think that the platforms are becoming more complex? Or is it just this is just a doing thing and this doesn't really apply to Alibaba or Tencent? No, it's across all the platforms. I think China's a bit interesting from that perspective and that the platforms have... And again, here's the, the, the fundamental difference is you can get access to the data in China far beyond what you can get outside of China. All right. So if you work with Meta or you are working with Google and you're trying to get in and get, they typically are more of a black box. They're not going to actually let you pull the data out of the system all that easily and be able to interrogate it and understand why the decisions are happening or why the algorithm believes a certain thing. If you access Douyin and you know, you go into ByteDance and you access Doyen and you're trying to understand what's happening and, and, and how the audience segmentations work across A1 to A5. Or if you go into Ali's system and you're in Ali Mama and you're across Chen Chama to so on and so forth, every acronym under the sun. Or if you even go into Red and what they're doing with Lingxi at this point. They're opening up the data far more than anyone would do outside of the market. The problem is the 
process of getting that data out is genuinely fairly horrific <laughs> for the end user. So whether it's on the client side or whether it's on the agency side, the operator that has to go in and pull that data out is dealing with a unique dashboard that's bespoke to each of the platforms. And each of the platforms is thinking, the more data I show, the more frameworks I want to have. So whether it's the five A's, AIPL, AITPS, or whatever the acronym flavor of the week or month is, they're trying to build out what is unique about our closed loop ecosystem, right? Because every, every one of these platforms is in a battle for time spent. They're trying to show that their platform can answer all your questions, all of your challenges, even though they really can't because no consumer in China stays on one single platform or one single ecosystem. But that's what they're trying to sell because they're all in that same economic situation of I need to build time spent because penetration is topping off. So that's it's the business driver behind why the platforms are doing what they're doing. Right? They're all creating complexity. Now, when they create that complexity and they create the new dashboard, they create the new system or the new ability to activate, here's your new license, this is what you need to do. And then they recommend to the brands which agencies to work with. They're looking at, well, do you have certifications? How many certifications in our newest platform? How many certifications in our new framework? That's the business model right now. So managing that complexity is absolutely essential for any agency to survive in this landscape right now. The only way to manage that complexity is to streamline, automate, find efficiency whenever, wherever possible, centralize whatever you can. And that's, I think, perhaps one of the most unique things about China versus the rest of the world at this point. Ben, given what you just mentioned, what kind of people should be joining agencies in China? I mean, what do you look for? If you're looking for people for talent now, versus maybe, let's say, five years ago or 10 years ago, has it changed? Are, are, are you looking more for data analysts and less for account handlers or all-arounder type people? Given the complexities, where do you see that your body of talent that can actually manage this ecosystem are coming from? The first thing to say is rather than thinking about the level that they come in, Right, And rather than thinking about the technical or the hard skill, it's more around, why do you even want to do it? Like, what's the passion, right? Where is this passion coming from? What excites you about it? What do you enjoy the most? I, w I was at Duke Kunshan University earlier this year talking to, you know, you get bring in, they bring you in and you talk to the kids that are about to graduate. This is like May or April, May last year or earlier this year. And all I said to them was like, more than anything, just what are you passionate about? If you're passionate about anything, that's what you should do. Things are going to change. Life is going to get hard. You will need to learn new hard skills. It's going to continue to evolve. And it's going to evolve faster than it ever has in the past. That's, that's pretty much the, the golden rule of life at this point, right? The best way to survive that or the best way to, to excel within that environment is be passionate about what you're doing. Because if you're passionate, you're more likely to be resilient. You're more likely to find ways to solve the problems that come up. You're more likely to be excited about solving those problems. And you're more likely to be happy when you do solve those problems. So first, are you passionate about communications? Are you passionate about 
building a brilliant campaign? Are you passionate about data? Are you passionate about finding insights? And if you are any of those, there's probably a role for you within media agencies. The thing is, again, because we're across everything, right? So we, I need data analysts that are going to be brilliant at taking, say, right now, Yuntu data and giving me killer segmentations and audiences. That's one, right? I need brilliant people from a content perspective to join our Content Plus team, and I need them to be either brilliant people when it comes to esports. I need people who understand production and cutting-edge digital production capabilities and can leverage all the best and the greatest AIGC com, you know, content generation opportunities that are out there. I need brilliant strategic minds that can have that lateral thinking, that can bring and pull insights out of disparate data sets. I need people who have EQ off the scale and off the charts that can navigate difficult client conversations and client politics. We need people across every spectrum, right? It, it's not any one single thing. So if you're passionate about any of those, we have a role or an opportunity for you. Like the, the biggest challenge that we have is I don't want the fresh grad joining thinking, oh, I'm joining advertising. And they come to Mindshare and it's like, do this PowerPoint report. Do a report in Excel or take screenshots all day long of a campaign to prove it happened. My job is to make that the old work that gets automated by machine learning or AI. I need people who are brilliant thinkers, but not just brilliant thinkers, but doers. People who are going to solve problems. And if you can solve that problem in content, if you can solve that problem in data analytics, if you can solve that problem in cons custom, you know, consumer insights, if you can solve that problem in EQ and navigating the politics of a client, bring it on. I got jobs. In one of my previous roles at WPP, I don't know if you guys remember, I don't think I organized this. Like, I think I was a participant. But um, regardless, one of the hiring strategies that ByteDance, when they first launched, uh, you, you might remember, Ben, was, uh, you know, they'd announced this 1 million RMB award um, or reward for anyone that could design a Douyin native um, campaign. And the idea for them really was, while it was also an opportunity for them to collect case studies, it turned out to be a hiring kind of a tactic. And so they, so they went out and did a bunch of these million RMB campaigns, and they used that as a vehicle to basically hire out all of the, basically anyone that was really good at, at, uh, at content and, uh, and running campaigns on Doing. Yeah, and as a result, I think we we lost sort of the top cream of, of of some of the best people at WPP, and then many of them came back because they were overworked over there as well. But uh, so Ben, you talked about you kind of mentioned earlier this point around AI, and you can't wait any longer, and you're really looking forward to the evolution of AI, AIGC, and the application of AI in media because it kind of helps. Um, uh, remove some of the more process-led functions within a media uh, organization. Uh, are there specific roles that you know that you think Mindshare or a media business will be hiring? You know, with AI at the center uh, of that function, um, that are going to help evolve Mindshare from being just a media company, but you know, a bit more data, a bit more machine-led, a bit more AI-led company. How do you think roles are going to kind of pivot, or how do you think they're going to shape in the future? And how do you see AI being central to, to, to those roles as well? Ten years ago, everyone 
to be a digital expert, then everyone became a crypto expert, and then everyone became a, a VR, AR expert, and today it seems like everyone's a, an AI expert. So do you have AI experts at your company, or is that a function of learning and trying, and how do you see roles at Mindshare evolving in the future? At a WPP level, there's already quite a bit from an AIGC standpoint that's being done, right? And that's globally and as well in China. So there's WPP Imagine where we leverage AIGC capabilities that everybody in WPP can log in and, and leverage. And that's everything from the dollies to the stable diffusions to chat GBT, whatever you need to leverage, you can actually go in and access that right now, right? So it's accessible to everybody in the organization. That is obviously a benefit. That's good. That's great. But I think what's going to be more useful in the near term for us, we're not going to hire some brilliant data scientist who's going to be our AI wunderkin that's going to develop some new thing from an AIGC standpoint. We're more likely to license and leverage what's out there in the market at this stage. Um, what's more useful for us is changing the the mental approach of the people that we have to think about the processes and the challenges we have and how to optimize them. The best example of that would be like Power Automate. I don't know if you guys have used Power Automate for Microsoft. So basically, it's it's even easier now with Copilot. So what they've launched, where you can now do it with pretty much natural language. But Power Automate, which is part of Office 365, which again, everyone in WPP Group M, Mindshare has access to, is essentially workflow management and automation of workflows. So if you have repetitive tasks, if you have things that you have to do, which is when a campaign launches or this thing happens, I need to get an approval from here, from here, from here, or I need to upload this campaign into this platform. If that's a repeatable process, you can build that workflow using Power Automate within Office 365 and just have it run automatically on whatever trigger you set, whether it's an email or a campaign or something posts, whatever happens. The challenge for anyone to get the most out of Power Automate at this stage is it's not about just repeating the same crappy process that exists right now. You need to be able to interrogate and understand the existing process. From there, think about, well, then, if this is the existing, is this the best process? Streamline that process as simply as you can and then recreate it within Power Automate and let Power Automate run. Simple way to think about it is, if RPA, robotic process automation, is how you put a Band-Aid on a shitty process that exists, that you don't have the ability to change that process, you can automate that. If you want to fix the existing process and you want to make it fundamentally easier and better, you can leverage Power Automate to also automate that on top. Now, the simple way to think about that is, as an organization, we're training people to think from a power automate perspective. Look at your crappy processes. Look at the old way of doing things. Is there a better way? If there is a better way, let's figure that out and align on that. Build an automation suite just for that. And then we'll use that across the organization. And because one of the coolest things about power automate is any flow, and they call them flows, just because we need another term in our lives, but a Power Automate flow, once you build it, you can upload it into the central library that everyone in Mindshare and everyone at GroupM and everyone at WPP can access. 
and simply say, oh, you built that flow that automates that crappy reporting tool? You built that, that, that flow that automates that really, really, really horrible user experience about uploading to Minder? I can leverage that now, and it's now propagated across the entire organization. So for us, it's less about hiring an AI scientist or a team of developers. It's training people to think differently, fundamentally, about how are we operating, and then leverage the existing tools and capabilities that we have right there in Office 365. It's one of the things that Bryce and I kind of also agree on when we talk about artificial intelligence, especially when we're using tools like ChatGPT is that it's it's hard to train someone, to give someone 15 years of digital marketing or marketing or brand experience. But it's easier to upskill someone on how to use you know, automation tools. And so the power of being a very smart person and having that tool available to you, I think the, you know, the multiplier effect is much greater than saying, shit, you know, my account person or my planner or my strategist or my creative is not you know, it's not future-proof. And so what it sounds like, it's all about upskilling your team with the right tools and and seeing how that impacts the work that you do and, and the efficiency that you create within your organization. I'll put it this way. AI is going to replace everybody who's average at whatever they do. Boom. Okay, there you go. At the end of the day, in the next two to three years, if you're not significantly above average at what you do, there is not going to be much of a place for you in whatever industry you're in because AI will do an average job quite effectively and quite efficiently in three years. We can all joke about ChatGPT4 and the mistakes it makes right now. ChatGPT6 is only a couple of years away at most. I guarantee you it will do an average job more efficiently and effectively than 80% of the population. And this goes back to the earlier point. Like if you're in school right now and thinking about what career or should I join this agency, should I do whatever, if you are not resoundingly passionate about what you're going to be doing, don't. Are your clients ready to, to seek truth in a world of artificial intelligence that replace media planners? Artificial intelligence, I guess, won't have the type of EQ that client servicing people have. And as a result, you end up in a situation where, you know, you can't, you, you know, you're always, you know, you're, 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 it's black or white. It's not grayscale. And so, you know, being able to navigate that organization that has multiple silos and you're doing omnichannel and all of this becomes a lot more difficult. And so while AI can replace us, it certainly, I don't know, I, I kind of feel that it's going to be difficult for it to uh, navigate the intricacies that are attached to media that impacts business? Sure, this year and next year, maybe in five years, I would not place any bets against AI being able to do things that we cannot possibly imagine at this current, this current stage. I don't think it's being cynical. I think I'm looking at it from an optimistic standpoint. It should be able to do far more than what we see right now. It's just like looking at the internet in 2000 versus what it is now, right? Like, Nobody believed the internet could be anything in the late 90s, right? Ben, I was going to ask you uh, a question, and that we're on the talent side of things. How do you stay relevant in China as an expat? What do you do to keep ahead of things uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader? What do you do to make yourself relevant uh, given 
the challenges, the quality of the talent, the quality, the, the complexity of the markets? What do you do personally to, to stay ahead of things? I think the days of dumb Lawai in a meeting room are gone, <laughs> right? Because I think there were a lot of freeloaders and we just had all kinds of people. And like, I remember once upon a time, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we used to say, failed anyone, anywhere else in the world, go to China, you'll, you'll be successful. And I think those days are kind of gone. And if anyone's truly an expert at what they do, I think they'll be valuable anywhere in the world. I think the I, th- I think that's one thing, and then I think the other thing is culturally, Chinese people are just more you know they're very timid people. It takes a, a little bit of effort to you know assimilate and to get them to warm up to you and to get some reciprocity in in working with you. I think that takes time. The the last thing is like I think Chinese people like there's a bunch of people that are that are now expatriated and they've returned to China or they have foreign degrees. And, and I kind of think that at least in our circle, that it's going to be easier. Like, I think we're having more effective conversations that, that bridge and build versus conversations that digress. And I remember Unilever in 2009, completely different company to the more recent meetings I had maybe last year. The quality of the people, the type of conversation, very interesting. But I think China is just competitive. And if you don't make the cut, then you can't make it. So I think there's a couple of things there. There's one, what's happened in the last three years of, you know, the COVID restrictions and people going and all that. And the kind of inherent impact on how China's economy has grown and then not grown in the last three years. You know, 2020, 2021, people forget were really, really kick-ass years for China. Like they were really, really good. Economy is great. Business is good. Everything was growing. Borders were closed. Lots of foreigners left. But then you had a whole lot of Chinese folks that took on positions of power and were given a lot of free remit to do what they needed to do. And and multinationals, certainly, given kind of car blanche. Now then you have 2023, right? And the end of 22 and then 2023. Within that, you have the economy slow down. There's hope that everything's going to grow in Q1. Things have not grown like everyone hoped in Q1. At the same time, borders open up and you have all of the HQs coming to visit. More than they had did in three years, they have done in the last, you know, kind of 10 months, right? So from that perspective, you have a whole lot of folks that are in positions of power, that have never experienced a slowing economy, have never experienced a non-20% growth year-on-year environment from a macro level. That is an inherent challenge. And that's not whether you're Chinese or you're foreign or whatever you are. You're just not schooled up on that because you had three decades of 10 to 20% growth year-on-year no matter what. Yeah? That's a skill set challenge. Then you have the added bonus of a whole bunch of folks coming in, not on Teams calls, but coming in for face-to-face meetings. And the conversations and the meetings are happening in English in various different accents that do not make it easy for people to respond to quickly when all they've had to do is Chinese language for the last three years. Yeah. Or if you're on a Teams call, you've got a script and you just kind of read your script. Those are combining to create quite a bit of challenges across most multinational organizations. And that's why you're seeing a lot of churn, both on client side and on agencies. You know, is there value in foreigners still coming to China? Yes. Is it as much value as it was before? No. 
I think I do agree with Holly in that China's hard, yo. China's competitive. It's tough. Like, and it should be. I, I say this to a lot of our multinational clients. They're like, oh, China's gotten hard. I'm like, well, it's 1.4 billion people. Like, it's the second largest economy in the world. Why should it be easy? <laughs> right? Like, at the end of the day, we should not be stressing or surprised or shocked that it's difficult. We should just get on with it, accept it, and move on. The foreign talent that we're bringing in, and, you know, I have hired foreign talent in the last year and brought them in fresh off the boat. They need to come in for the right situation, for the right opportunity, for a setup where you can give them something of a soft landing for the first three to six months. Let them build those relationships, build the hard skills around the landscape so that clients will buy into them. If you just fly in some senior laowai at this stage, of course, nobody's going to give a shit. Why should they? You don't know anything about the market. You haven't been here. You haven't seen what's happened in the last three years, much less the last year. What value are you bringing to the table other than your incredible brilliance? Like, really? Come on, right? Let's be real. One thing also is like the the relationship aspect. Relationship is important, yes, but more times than not, you can build that relationship within a month or two. Right, you can demonstrate tangibly that you're going to care. You're going to be hands, you know, sleeves rolled up. You're going to be hands on. You're going to be involved in the client's business, and you're going to be understanding the intricacies of what they need, and you're going to help them articulate that to HQ. As a foreigner, you can build that relationship. They will see the value proposition of having you involved, and you can build that trust. We're ready for the AB test, Ali. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're ready. Ready to go. A stands for Ali. B stands for Bryce. I'm going to throw two words at you. You've got to pick either of the two words or phrases. Clients or partners? Partners. Pitching or playing? Pitching. Economics or agency? Economics. Price or strategy? Strategy. Digital or omni-channel? Ugh, I hate omni-channel, but not digital. Or integrated marketing. I, I think that's what you guys call it. The... I'll take omni-channel, but under protest. What would you call it? What would you what, would you give it another name? Or? Life, life, consumer experience, consumer <laughs> <laughs> experience, normal shit, things that right, things that people do. <laughs> All right. CEO or CMO? CEO. Two thousand and nine or twenty twenty nine? Twenty twenty nine. People or product? Same. Power automate or process? That's our choice. Process. Skills or competitiveness? Competitiveness. Teams or face-to-face? Face-to-face. Ali and I really want to thank you for being on the show. As, as We should have had you on a lot earlier than, than, than today, but uh, thanks again, and thanks for sharing your insights with us today. It, it was good fun, and thank you for inviting me on. And thank you for, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show, and to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.